Warning, this podcast is for educational purposes only. These are real people sharing their real stories of how hard it is to be a filmmaker. Do not emulate or copy anything you hear in this podcast. I remember sitting outside going, I'm screening my third feature film next week and I'm losing my house. I was sitting at my kitchen table with my wife writing some very big checks to lots of lawyers. And, you know, and I said, if something doesn't change, you know, we could lose everything. And she was like, well, we don't have money. And I said, well, we can't let that stop us. Don't let that stop us. So I got hit with just dozens and dozens of thousands of dollars in debt. I, I think it was 80,000 at one point. And I had a check in my hand. I went to the bank and it bounced. And then the person disappeared. This happened twice. You know, if I have to rob a bank to get the money to make this movie, I hope I can shoot it before I go to trial. So I stayed at Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, straight. I don't know how I did it. And we even had this idea that we would make a feature, just her and I, if this didn't pan out. But they did enough damage where half of our crew was scared and they left. And I'm talking about like, I went down. Like it was like all the pain or emotion that I was suppressing kind of just came out. It devastated me so much that I, I, I didn't know if it was worth it. You keep going because you're passionate and you're gonna get it done, you know, but it's not painless. If I like it, I'll give you a year's contract. If I don't like it, you're out in the street. You can't come back to this job. You gotta ask yourself, do you wanna make a small little indie film or do you wanna have a job? And I was like, I wanna make a small little indie film piece. I could do a job I really don't wanna do and make okay money or I could do exactly what I wanna do and push myself and that was a scary, scary risk. Walking around any part of the city with $14,000 worth of equipment, a girl all by myself, with one eye covered and earphones on and can't see behind me. And you kind of block out at the same time this, wow, this could be over like that. At one point I think I calculated it was like, it's once it got like over like 150 no's or so, I just, I stopped counting. As I look back, I'm thankful that he said no. Because had he made that first film, I would never probably get on the set and start to direct. I would push a button and see what it does. And then whatever that, whatever it did, I would just write that down. Out of the 50 plus movies you've directed and produced, which was the hardest to find financing for? Well, I would definitely have to say the first one, She's Gonna Have It, which cost $175,000. Because that was my debut film as far as a feature film, as feature films go. And people think that I did that film right after film school. There was a four year period between me finishing NYU and she's gonna have it coming out. So it was not like that. And then another one would be uh, Malcolm X. We ran out of money and they had to go get some money too. Does it ever get easier? What's easy? What's easy? I mean, if it was easy, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have launched a Kickstarter campaign. This, this, uh, we're in day five. So, uh, this is a tough business, you know, you know, that's, and I really, and E can, can tell you, he's one of my students, and every time I'm here in LA, he helps me. But I do not try to sugarcoat things all to my students. And uh, it would be a great disservice to them if I did that. So I let them know, you know, this, this is no guarantee it's going to happen for you. It was kind of a weird situation because once this happened, it was about a year before 
the movie happened, which is actually pretty quick, but it feels strange in that situation to sort of wait for all of these things and not knowing if it's real, if it's actually going to happen or not. Because during this year, it was, you know, signing with a management firm and an agency and all of that, and then finding a writer, working with the writer to develop a script and making a deal for all of this with, you know, getting a lawyer and all of that. So during this year, Lotte and I, we didn't know if this was actually real or if it was all bullshit. So we were like, well, we can't stop going. So we kept making shorts, um, you know, around our house where we <laughs> could come up with little new ideas. We made one in the attic, one in the basement and just trying to come up with new stuff. And, um, you know, for, for each of these shorts, I would make these little behind the scenes videos that was that turned out to be very appreciated by people who saw it as like other up and coming filmmakers. Um, and it was something I did just because I, I loved that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see, you know, I've always loved seeing behind the scenes and making ofs and all these because, you know, just to learn as much as possible and see what it's like on a film set and how do you create these things and all that. Uh, so we just kept doing that. Um, and we even had this idea that we would make a feature, just her and I, if this didn't pan out. But then um, in March, something like that, of uh, 2015, they basically saw, yeah, movie is happening. We need you here like next week or, or whatever. So Lotta basically had to quit her job because she was working in a group home. You know, I was a freelance animator, so I, I didn't have anything steady going. So we basically, you know, locked our apartment, got on a plane, and this was you know, paid for by the studio because we were broke. Like when we first got uh, a manager, you know, they were like, hey, can you get out here? Because we want you to meet all these people and go like on this, you know, tour of Hollywood. It's like, oh, hey, this is this guy and whatever. But we didn't have any money. So it's like, yeah, we can't do that. But then they paid for us to, to fly out here. And um, yeah, it was very strange. We, we, we had to find a place to live here and it's everything is super expensive in L.A. Um, but we found on an Airbnb this half a garage in Burbank. It was sort of parted into two. So this um, mother and her daughter were our neighbors in this garage. And it was like, I mean, for us, it was like uh, two and a half grand or something a month. And oh, for wow. us, that is insane. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it was a pretty nice garage. I mean, it wasn't bad or anything, but it was quite a shock to, to find out how expensive it was. And we still didn't have any money. And when we got over here, yeah, the studio paid for the flight over and everything. And they were going to pay for living expenses, but not until the movie was greenlit. And it wasn't actually greenlit until quite late. So we had to, I mean, first of all, we borrowed from everyone we knew back home in Sweden. And then when that money ran out, it's like, what do we do now? So we had to borrow from the producer and the, like, the manager. And it was kind of dicey because it was like, well, if this doesn't happen, we're in deep shit because we're like all borrowed out when it comes to money. But then, thankfully, it did happen, the movie. Um, but yeah, it, it was all pretty crazy because I'd never been on a movie set before. So the first time I actually stepped foot on a real movie set, it was as the director, which oh, wow. was pretty crazy. I mean, especially because, I mean, everyone there had more experience than me and every assistant, your PA, and like, they've all done, worked on real movies and I, you know, and, and part of me think, you know, I, I think they kind of thought I was more experienced than I was. 
And you know, I wasn't going to correct them. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, sure. You want, want me to make your movie? I, I will. But you know, they would ask me if, oh, do you have a DP you usually work with or an editor or a storyboard artist? And it was just, no, I've done all these things myself because I had to, you know. I don't think I'm more gifted or smarter than anyone else. I just want to do it bad enough. And this goes back to what I was saying before. I create my own opportunities. I'm not going to wait for someone to say, oh, now we're going to let you make this movie. I figure out a way to do it. Whether, And I've always said this whenever I go into a movie, especially a movie like Steel City. I said, I'm going to make this for 30000 or 300000 I'm going to make this movie. And I think once you do that and you create the sense of urgency and you, you're moving forward, pe more people start to hop on. Um, but I'm no smarter than it or more... I think there's a lot of passionate people out here who are passionate about acting or passionate and um, who want to do this and they're convinced this is their life. That's great. But if you're really convinced this is your life, then you have to make it your life. Make it a career. And I have made this, I made the promise to myself that I would never give up. I would continue doing it despite whatever setbacks. Hey, if I've got to go get another day job, you know cleaning carpet or working in a warehouse, I'll do that, that's fine. But I'm never gonna abandon what I feel is such an essential part of who I am as a person, what I can offer. What I, you know, I think given a bigger scale, given a bigger canvas, whether it's Hollywood, and I think eventually I'm gonna get there, um, I'll be able to do something that's going to really affect, you know, have, may, say something to, you know, to reach a wide audience. But I don't, I'm not entitled that's why I keep doing these small movies and figuring it out because, you know, I really feel that one day I'll be in a position to reach a wide audience. And when that happens, when they say, where did this guy come from? They'll say, oh, he's been doing all this stuff. He's been working. He's been developing his craft to get here, you know, and that's what I'm doing. And I need help and I need the support of people and I need crews and great actors and everyone to, to, to come to the thing but I also am sensitive and I think a lot of people don't realize this too who come out here they have to get something out of it too this isn't the Brian Jun party and this isn't the whomever the Bill Jones party or whatever they got to get something out of it too whether you write you do your due diligence and you write a great script that people that actors are really gonna like and you raise money to pay your crew or if you don't have money to pay your crew you hire people who are willing to work for a certain amount. You know, you, you have to figure out what your resources are. Some people have a lot of resources. Some people have no resources, and it's not fair. I'm here to tell you, it is not fair. Some people have a lot of resources, they have a lot of money. They have their dads in the entertainment business, they're, someone's rich, or they give, you know, it's not fair. This is not a fair game out here. It's just, and if people come out here thinking it's a fair playing field, then they're, they're in for a rude awakening. The key is to figure out what your resources are, what you have access to, and to make the best of it. And if you're able to do that sooner or later, I feel like your resources are going to grow and the, your outreach are going to grow. But if you spend all your time wallowing in the fact that you don't have what someone else has or their outreach or their, their, uh, their ability to... Um, get more money or get more exposure. That's the way then, then you're already dead in the water because that's the way it's always going to be Period. It's not level. It's not a fair playing field out here In LA, it's 
particular. Any, yeah, in LA in particular, I think that applies to life. But in the entertainment business, it's certainly not a fair playing field at all. I mean, you know, how do you explain movie stars' kids starring in movies? Couldn't they? Have, I'm sure there's another young actor who's probably just as good or better. But no, you know, it's nepotism. It's who you know, and and I think that works for a while until it doesn't. And a lot of deserving people who work their asses off do not get opportunities because they're pushed out of the club because they don't know enough people. But you know, you know, I'm under the mentality I'm going to fight. You know, I'm the I'm the guy that's standing in line waiting for the guy in the club to uh, who's been there so long he either he dies or he uh, he goes to a different club. You know, I'm like a life. You know, I. I, I you know, whatever happens with me in my life and my career, you know, I'm not going away. I'm just, I'm going to keep doing this. I honestly thought, and I was obsessed. I, I was like, I, I thought, I, I convinced myself I was going to die if I didn't make the movie. I thought I was going to get struck by a fatal disease if I didn't figure out a way to make the movie. That I would... I would, it would either happen now or like I just pictured myself like laying on my deathbed thinking I didn't make Steel City. I didn't have the guts and I didn't, I didn't do it. And I just told myself, I said, if this movie kills me, I have to get it made. And you know, if I, if I bug, you know, if I have to rob a bank to get the money to make this movie, I hope I can shoot it before I go to trial. I and mean, that's the type of stuff I was thinking. Like I was obsessed with it. And I think that. That can be a turnoff, but when you're young and you're passionate, you can you kind of have some leeway. You can't really on your fifth film like, you know, you're not a kid anymore. I mean, you know, I'm going to turn 35 this year, so you have to like be a little bit more strategic. But when you're young and you know, um, I think you know, I was just, I mean, obsessed. I thought I was going to lose my life if I didn't get the film made. I mean, and that's not an understatement. I thought if I didn't get the film made, I was going to commit suicide. That's how obsessed I was. Seriously. Oh, wow. I mean. There was not one piece of distribution in place when we put our money together to make Dark Girls. We were passionate about this topic because both of us, my, my co-partner, um, Chan Berry, we had, are both dark-skinned black men who have faced the prejudice of being dark-complected in our own community. And we saw members of our family, little girls, um, from five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old going through this pain being called monkey, ape, darky, gorilla face, uh, ugly, uh, and asking their mothers, can they be bleached lighter because they were ugly and the parents trying to say. So we said, oh, let's see what happens. And so we made the film and we cut a trailer, put the trailer online and it got 2.3 million global hits. And we said, we have something, we have something. So let's see if we can get a touring company to, and they did, we got a touring company, tours around the world, 
country and different parts of the world, and the success was really great. We still had no distribution. And so we said, okay, let's get a broker, maybe a, a booker, and maybe the booker can set up some screenings and well, how much is it going to cost us? As, we, as we're going into the cost for the booker to maybe, say, five or six AMC, AMC theaters or something, Man, between the, the booking and the promotion, and can't afford, we're dry. Good run. Went to the film festivals and so on. Got a call on the phone. Oprah Winfrey's interested in uh, you guys screening the film for her. Okay. Sent it to Scott over there. And Scott looked at it, brought it to Oprah's office, saw it, and he said, What's your lawyer's name? And once that happened, it's, ugh. it was a, I'm not going to lie, man. It, it was a pain, it was painful, man. Some days you want to just say, forget it, man. Give up. What about it was painful? And what was the, what time frame are we talking about? Year and a half. I mean, you're talking about, you know, your, your, your bank account is dry and uh, you got bills to pay and your, your accountant's pissed at you to the degree of your, you really are, something's wrong with you. <laughs> you spent this money for your mortgage this year and where's that going to come from? Um, you're crazy you're, and you start thinking, maybe, you know, maybe I was a little crazy. And then divine intervention or whatever you want to call it says, you're, you're doing something that we want you to do, so we're going to help you. And when that happens, it's like, <sighs> first time we take a deep breath in a long time. But you can't give up. You just, it's, the, it's, 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 it's the blessing and curse of this industry, you know. You, it's, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, you keep going because you're passionate and you're going to get it done, you know, but it's not painless. And then when someone sees what you see, and they have distribution, and they say it has value, uh, tears. And I don't mean the polite type, I mean the, the snotty type, you know, uh, the, that kind of stuff that really, just thankful. As you know, the crude lawsuit was very draining emotionally, financially, <laughs> psychologically. Um, and actually that was in 2010. And there was one day I was sitting at my kitchen table with my wife writing some very big checks to lots of lawyers. And, you know, and I said, if something doesn't change, you know, we could lose everything. Um, luckily things did change. And, you know, I, I emerged from crude from that lawsuit, you know, okay. Um, but I had become disillusioned about whether documentaries can really affect change and if this is the price you have to pay, maybe I need to rethink my career. Um, but then that year was bookended beautifully in August of 2011, a year, exactly a year later from that day where I was writing all these big checks. Uh, it was announced that the West Memphis Three were getting out of prison. And of course the films, you know, the Paradise Lost series played a big role in that because it was kind of those films you know, while I don't want to take full credit or e even anything close to that because a lot of very unique circumstances came together and tens of thousands of people, 
you know, very generously agitated for the, you know, the release of the West Memphis Three and notable celebrities came in and, you know, a unique set of circumstances came together to release the West Memphis Three or to, or to put pressure on the authorities. Um, but the films were the catalyst for that. And so after having had a horrible year getting clobbered in my lawsuit against Chevron, um, I had, you know, the opposite experience where I saw the power of documentaries that, you know, films can affect positive social change, that they had a deep impact on, uh, on the West Memphis Three case. And thankfully that renewed my spirit and uh, I got out of my doldrums and I, you know, carried on. And so the next big project that came along was uh, the Whitey Bulger film. Uh, and, you know, uh, luckily CNN Films uh, encouraged me to make that film. And so I did not have to struggle for financing on that one. CNN, you know, paid for it. Um, so it w wasn't really so much about the money. It was more about the emotional fortitude it requires to make these kinds of films, to enter into these kinds of worlds, the battles you have to undertake to, you know, get your story out there. And after the crude experience, and, you know, I, I, had, I had a little bit of the life drained out of me, but thankfully, with the release of the West Memphis Three, I'm back in business. <laughs> And, and, made, and, decided so. to, and decided to make the Whitey Bulger film. I got offered to direct like two feature films before Compound Fracture and they both fell through and it was just like such a heartbreaking experience to get it all the way to where they even wrote me a check. And I had a check in my hand. I went to the bank and it bounced. And then the person disappeared. This happened twice. In fact, one time I actually was at the bank with the person while it bounced. And I got so upset with this person. This was like maybe four or five years ago. I just let him have it. I lost it. I like snapped. Everything that I had had difficulties with up to that point culminated into this moment. And I just snapped on this guy. I feel bad now. But I, I was like a 25 or 26 year old kid. And I made this 40 some year old gentleman cry in the bank. And I felt certain victory because I actually told him what I, he needed to hear. But at the same time, I felt a little bit bad about that because I had reached a point where whatever it was that was going on pushed me to the point where I was doing that. And I felt like maybe this business ain't for me. I don't know if I want to become a person that can do this kind of a thing. And I felt bad about it for a while. But then I realized that, and I look back on it, and I'm like, man, that guy really screwed me, though. I spent so much time, and I asked so many people favors to get this guy's movie made, and I was going to direct it. And it fell through, and everybody got screwed. It sucked felt really bad about it. So I, the guy did kind of deserve it. And as much as I feel bad about that, and I've kind of like morally felt a little bit, you know, regretful that I said some of the things I said to that guy, I learned from that experience. And I think I understood that it's going to be imp hard, if not impossible, to get what you want out of this business unless you really have the ability to push through those moments. When it's the hardest thing for you in the world and you feel like just crushed. If you can push past that, I think you have what it takes to stay in this industry. And I've had friends that have fallen off and I don't blame one bit. I feel like I kind of wish I did fall off at one point because I've had to go through some pretty intense experiences in my life as a result of choosing this career path. But you know, then you look at it like, well, at least I'm, you know, at least I'm doing what I love and I can and I'm safe. 
you know, I have a lot of friends that are in the military and they have to do things that threaten their life every day, but they still do it. And if they got, if those guys can do it and they're in their heart, they're willing to put forth that kind of effort. You know, what I have, my problems in my life are so minuscule compared to that. And I, I can't even compare it. And it's just like, you know, you start to think about things like that and you're like, well, of course I'm going to keep going. Why not? You know what I mean? It's just like a, it's everybody, like there's always somebody else out there that's got it a lot worse than you do. So you just got to remember that. There are police driving around South Los Angeles. Um, like there are like, you know, buses going by in, in Hollywood. It's just a constant presence and same with the helicopters and um, I never really felt like anything was going to happen to me if I aimed a camera um, as long as I'm not an antagonizing anyone um, so yeah and as far as being afraid in that area I think that's kind of like a, a twofold question because I, I know that the, the crime rate is, is higher there, so that's uh, in my, my mind while I'm there. But it, also if I'm walking around any part of the city with $14,000 worth of equipment, a girl all by myself, with one eye covered and earphones on and can't see behind me, you know, I'm always going to feel a little edgy, you know. So I definitely was, I would say, more on edge than I, I would be. Um, but it's hard to, to, to determine because I feel like I'm a little ballsy in, in that sense, like especially if I'm trying to tell a story that's not about me and for, a, I believe, a greater cause, that I'll put myself into situations that are, you know, worth, worth not my life, but, you know, my life. I definitely got people stopping me on the street to ask about, about the, the equipment and what I'm doing. and. I got a lot of support too, a sister out in the hood with my, you know, with my gear and like, hey, tell my story, tell my story. You know, it's like, you gotta tell, listen to my story. I got a lot of that too. Like, okay, let me take notes. Um, I'm, not, I'm busy right now, I can't do your story. <laughs> um, give, give me your information. Um, but I did get a lot of uh, support out there. I think people, I thought it was actually really great too to be sort of an example in South LA of like not only just like a, black woman or mixed woman um, making a movie as an example in the area where there's no film school that I know of in South LA um, and then also being female and hopefully empowering other women that even if they're not going to be um, a, a, a filmmaker just seeing someone do something that looks like out of the box or something that we don't see regular, regularly that I, I think that it definitely was inspiring for, for people to see. My best friend growing up is this guy, Brandon Barrera, and uh, we, uh, he's, he's the big business savvy guy and I'm the big creative guy and um, we, he convinced me to buy, go in with him and buy this house. So we bought a house in Hollywood. Uh, this was, you know, I had money from Peter Pan and some other acting jobs. Um, and we had this house and then I got into making this movie and I'm like, Brandon, how about we do a production company, sell the house, finance the movie? He said, sure, let's do it. We financed the movie. Um, two years later, I'm broke. I learned about something called capital gains tax. 
Should know about that before you sell a house, kids. Uh, so I got hit with just dozens and dozens of thousands of dollars in debt. I, I think it was 80000 at one point. And, uh, you know, I was worried about having to, I had the LLC for the movie and we had this production company and I went to work and I was, I moved into this apartment that I call the hovel and uh, lived there, worked every single night. Uh, where, where were you working? <laughs> I was working at the Village Idiot on Melrose and Martell. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a great bar and these, the, the guys who own the bar they had just sunk everything they had into opening this bar. And uh, I, I would come into work every morning to pick up my tips, like right as they opened. And one day my boss was like, uh, Blaine, tell me the truth. Do you have a drug problem? And I'm like, what? Like, what, do you, what do you mean? He's like, nobody needs 80 bucks so bad that they get here at 9 a.m. He's like, what's the deal? And I told him, I just, I just spent everything I have and a lot that I don't to make this movie. And he's like, well, I just did that for this restaurant. So we were in this same situation exactly, and we kind of became great friends. They would always work, work me and let me do uh, overtime to get a little extra money, and very frowned on the restaurant world. But they, you know, were, were such supporters. Um, ironically, not ironically, we, we've become very close, me and those guys, and the after party for the L.A. premiere of Cut to the Chase will be at the Village Idiot, which... Oh, that's great. I love synchronicity. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I was writing every day. I'd get up early in the morning and I'd write. And I wrote four or five scripts that year, the year of the hovel. Um, and <laughs> like, it was literally almost exactly a year because right as the lease was running out, Weather Girl came together. Um, I was able to get out of there. I got paid a proper fee to direct, you know, and I got to direct Mark Harmon and Caitlin Olson and John Cryer and Jane Lynch. It was like, it was a totally different, you know, experience for me. And like, I there was a time where I didn't think that would ever happen, but it was just tenacity. And if I hadn't have been in the hovel, I don't know if I would have been as writing as much as I was. And I don't know if I would have done Weather Girl. So, you know, it, it, I guess it paid off. I'll start the story, and if this is like too much for con like if it's too much for TV, like just let me know. Okay. But I um, lost a pregnancy during pre-production. Oh no. So of what Death Leaves Behind, and it was the hardest loss. Even though I've lost people, I didn't realize how bad that was. I didn't even you hear about people that have miscarriage and such. And mine, mine happened while I was I was I was put under. Like I was not conscious for it. It wasn't my decision. It was it was one of those things. It was very traumatic. But um, during pre-production, I was on set, like, you know, when I shouldn't have been right after that. But um, yeah, it was, that was so hard, but I put it away because I had a job to do. We were about to go into production, time to get moving. And I did, I went and moved. And we had, um, we filmed the dream sequences in What Death Leaves Behind separate from the film. And they're like their own little movie because it's different. It looks different. It's weird. It's a dream. It, we shot it in the Sun Center Studios um, in, in Aston, Pennsylvania. And it's very eerie and weird. So we shot them as their own movie. So we like went really hard into it. And this was like a year, like 2016 or something. And um, we shot it. And right after that, I had like a little break from the crazy. And I'm talking about like I went. Down. Like it was like all the pain or emotion that I was suppressing kind of just came out. And I wasn't used to that level of pain because of that type of pain because I don't suppress things. People stuff comes up, I deal with it. But that was different. It was like a whole nother heartstring that was pulled. So that was really tough. And then getting back into production, that's where some things had happened with one person kind of destroying some of the 
the, the synergy or whatever you want to call it, the, the culture, the, the caring nature of the set was kind of disturbed by a person and I had to fire them at, during that time. Um, there was a producer that was kind of helping us on some business ends that kind of uh, did some shady things. I had to get rid of them. It was like all these things that were really hard to deal with for anyone, but I was in a really bad space. Like, and I don't mean bad, like I was depressed, but it was like, it, my heart was like burst open. Like it was very much an open wound and I knew it and I communicated to my inner circle in the, in the group, like, you know, like the director knew at that point, they didn't know when it happened. They knew when I had to go back to the hospital because I had some complications from the surgery during production. I was like in the hospital on my computer and they're like, man, put the computer down. Like it was like crazy time. And then in the same time, I got to fire someone that was really important to the production. And I had to get rid of a relationship that would have made distribution easy because he was shady. <laughs> like stuff like that happened during that time. So I think that year of pre-production was not even though that was the moment, that wasn't that year wasn't the hardest. It was why, why we were in that lull and then coming back into production and finishing the project. It was so hard because it was really, it's just the hardest thing to do. To finish a film, a feature like film is the hardest thing to do on, in our industry, right? But then to be dealing with some of the hardest things I dealt with in life on the, the side of my husband and I losing a child, like that was really hard. And then like other things that pop up, you know, these, you know, um, draining situations that have nothing to do with the, the movie, but it has to do with the people making the movie. And then things like being um, aware of, and I, and I say shady, I mean like they were doing some bad business and I had to distance myself from that. Um, so all these little things, yeah, that, that made it the hardest year. Um, and I think we all grew from it, myself included, like where we would deal with, we were dealing with a lot. I mean, there were deaths in, we had someone in our production die right after someone that's in the movie. So it's hard for me to watch the film because he passed away. And we had um, a member of the crew, their grandmother died. We had, um, my AD had to drop out during production during the same time because she, she had a, a, a family um, death and different little things like that. They had nothing to do with the film. But those things that come up, it's like, are we going to lose because of something that's not the loss? Like, we're gonna make the film, right? Like, we're gonna keep going. So we just had to, it was a moment of huge perseverance. I'll say that. And it was big perseverance, like big hurdles to get over. And it was like, one of those things where like, you know, you get over a hurdle and you're like, ah. It was never that, it was like, all right, another one, another one, another one, while still having a very personal, like emotional wound. So that was, that was hard. And overcoming that though, lets me know on this little film, the things that we went through and growing leaps and bounds and getting through it and now having a theatrical release and you know all the things that you just can hope for, we, we achieved that with all of this. Hopefully all that won't happen on the next one, right? But also we know we can handle it. So when things happen, which they will, when things pop up or uh, things happen to us, we've already proven we can overcome things that are really difficult and, and not in like, you know, you go through something, it's hard, and you go through something else, and you're like, whoa, that was nothing. No, I know this was something, what we dealt with. So if we can overcome that, we can keep going. If I can keep going, if I can remain in a place of, I can still encourage someone that day, when I just cried all night in my two hours that I could have got some sleep, I can get through anything, anything. So there's no project that I can't confidently say to an investor, I'm going to make this film, and I'm going to get this outcome. Because if I said that on this one, and we got the outcome, I could do that on anything. And that's, a, a, that's another level of confidence that doesn't happen without adversity. So if you achieve something in a moment of darkness, 
how much easier is the light? How much easier is sunrise? Like just, you know, we've, got, we've gotten through it. So we could do it again, we could do it again, we could do it again. So in those moments of weakness or in those moments where things are going bad, I know that I'm not gonna crumble. I was in a unique situation uh, where I was wearing a lot of different hats. So when uh, Joel and I were developing it, uh, we were constantly working together. So that meant we were going out to producers. We were going out to investors. We were going out to casting agents. We were going out to anyone that would read it that could help us put together a package. So the, the challenges that happened were that we were attaching people that were good, that were you know friends of Joel's or just people who liked the script. And we were getting investors that were interested and investors that really wanted to make the film and were willing to option it and put in the time. But because of different reasons, they weren't able to finance it at the end. So, you know, sometimes production companies will have a slate of three films that year and one will go way over budget and another one will get pushed. And, you know, there's just there's always different reasons why financing can fall through. So unfortunately for us, that happened on three different occasions. I mean, for some films, it happens 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, you know, for other films, they get financing, and they move forward. You know, we, the third time when we lost financing, um, within 48 hours, the producer that we had attached, Taylor Hart is his name, who is uh, an incredible uh, producer, uh, very hungry and driven and getting a lot of projects done now. Within 48 hours of the last time that we had our financing fall through, he found another production company and they brought all the money to the table. So with that, we were able to start pre-production the next day. So we, you know, we had a terrible weekend thinking the film was once again shut down. And on Monday, we were flying out to Savannah, Georgia to shoot the film. So it just, every single time you try to get a film in production or even in a pre-production or get the financing, you're gonna find obstacles along the way. So the financing falling through was just the very first obstacle. Even, you know, the, the first day of production actually, uh, we were working in Savannah, Georgia, as I had mentioned, it's a right to work state. We weren't unionized across the board. So of course we had SAG, we were ATL unionized. So everything above the line uh, was unionized. We were SAG, but some of our other departments weren't completely unionized. So I don't know exactly which ones they were. I feel like it might've been makeup or hair or, or uh, costume design. But on the very first day of production, um, the unions and the Teamsters showed up on set and were picketing. And they told our crew that they would have, uh, that they would be fined $5,000 for working on the film, that they would have their um, cards revoked, that they wouldn't work in this town again. And although that's not true because Georgia is a right to work state, so technically you can shoot a film that's not entirely unionized. Uh, but they did enough damage where half of our crew was scared and they left. And so, we lost an entire day and our production company had to decide if they were going to uh, pay to unionize, which is a you know, six figure decision, and if they were gonna push production forward. And for several hours, we thought that we were gonna be shutting down completely. But luckily we had a strong production company behind us that, uh, that paid that difference and, and the wages for everyone who was working for, for us became unionized and increased and we made the film. Um, you know, so that was just another challenge. And throughout the process of, of production, there's challenges every single day, you know? Um, and even in the post-production, it's, it's a lot of creative people working together. Um, 
And at the end of the day, it's, it's a business. So you have different mentalities. You have people who want to create the best creative process uh, and, and product and film. And then you have people that want to make as much money as they possibly can. So even in post-production, we have people seeing differently, you know, on, on the same project. And uh, we just have to find a middle ground so that we can get it released. And, and it, it'll be the challenges that we have finding distribution, you know, getting into the film festivals that we want to get into and uh, getting into the amount of theaters and, and hopefully doing well with the film. So every single corner is, is uh, every single corner and every day is a challenge in getting a film done my case and probably the case of every filmmaker out there you 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 see that spark and you love it and you fight and you sacrifice everything to get there and you do it and you do it and you do it and then it doesn't quite happen the way you think you're not plucked out of obscurity like some of these guys are you're still working in the trenches for years and it's a little it can get frustrating and then in my case i did a film that had a lot of controversy around it and was never ultimately released and it was so utterly devastating because after so many years of just working and working and working and sacrifice, this film looked like it was gonna really be something. And then instead it, it's not released and there's a lot of controversy and bad press and all these ugly things. And it just, it devastated me so much that I, I, I didn't know if it was worth it. And I circled the drain. Cause it's hard to go from something like that, from a film that was so, artistically satisfying with such a great script and all these things to go from that to going back to trying to find work as a doing more corporate stuff like I was like how do you even what am I gonna do like I, I circled the drain for a long time like it it because my life was not turning out the way I thought it would and this is everyone's story right everyone like we all think we know how it's gonna turn out and life does this to you and goes back this way and you know so for, for a few years, I didn't know. My wife suggested to me, maybe we should just sell everything and go teach English in Korea. And I seriously thought about it. Um, and uh, it, it got to a point with me where I, I had to just, it, it stripped everything away from me and got me back to the basics of what do I really love? Like it, it, it forced me to take another look at what do I love about the film industry and filmmaking and storytelling. And I found that spark again, like I just, I love moving people and crafting stories. And I love to see people laugh when they're supposed to or jump when they're supposed to. Like I have worked my whole life for that. It, there's no feeling and no, I, I don't know anything else. I couldn't do anything else. Um, and, I, and I also had to, you know, and take that experience and try to see all the good that came out of it because a lot of good did and move forward, which is, it's not easy, but yeah, it, yeah, that's the other thing they don't tell you in film school is what happens when discouragement hits. Cause it does like it can, you know, especially when the success doesn't come if, when you think it will, you know, or it builds up to it and it, it feels like you're being blamed or something. Yeah, I mean, there is like, and I started this with, by saying this, there is, we are sold on this idea that, that filmmaking will happen in a certain way. Like the Duplass brothers were speaking at a film festival years ago or whatever. I saw, I read this article somewhere and they said, here's what you do. You make your film for 500 bucks and then you get distribution on it. You'll make some money on it. Then you make your second film and you put a big star in it 
and that'll do well on the festival circuit. Yeah, well, it might happen that way, but it might not. For most people, that's not how it happens. You'll make your film and you'll mortgage your house and then nothing happens. That's so common. That happens all the time. The film disappeared on Netflix and that's the end. And now what? And you know, you're not discovered and you're not picked from obscurity. And so then what do you do from there? Do you keep going? How much do you really love this? How hard are you willing to write that next script, get the next one going, fight for the next client with everything you've got um, and fight that cynicism that wants to just rear its ugly little head. Um, yeah, that's, that's where the love of it will really, you, you better discover it. You better know why you love it. Um, and I do think it's worth fighting for. All the negativity, all the challenges, all the frustrations is worth fighting through to get there because it really is great. Like when you're on set and it's working and you're telling that story and the actors are there and the cinematography, look, it, it's so like all of that disappears and just fades away. And you're just like, wow, I'm creating this amazing moment and it's working. Yeah, it, it's worth fighting for. No question. 2010, like I mentioned earlier, started with my son getting in an accident. I was getting ready to get ready to shoot my third film. And, you know, on the, the day after his accident, I basically, I literally had sent my script to my producer that morning, the morning my son was, in his, was injured. So my assistant director was already scheduling things and, and, and getting things, you know, starting our prep. And I was supposed to shoot that in February. So, you know, they were calling me, she was calling me and people were calling me. I wasn't answering my phone. Obviously my son was my number one priority. And when I got on, they're like, where the hell are you? We got the script. We have questions about this, that, and the other. And I called them. I said, my son was in an accident. Um, he's in ICU and I, I don't, I, I, I just don't have any answers for you. I, you have my script. You paid me for it. If you want it, if you guys got to stay with that schedule, just do whatever you want with it. Get another director. I don't care. And my producer at the time was, knew my family. So he was just like, don't worry about anything. We're ready when you are. And they had, you know, they had a deal with Blockbuster. So they had to get movies out at certain times. He's like, we'll, we'll figure it out. He's like, just don't worry about the movie. Take care of your family and just, you know, keep us posted on how Julian's doing. And that just made me feel good from a producer to say me that because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have faulted them if he had just said, you know what, we're going to have to hire another director because we have a schedule. But, you know, of course, you know, stay with your son. So it wasn't until like three weeks after that accident and he got home that my wife said, go make your movie. He's fine. And I said, you know, I didn't want to go anywhere, really. I just wanted to be with my son. She's like, you, you love this script. You, you put your heart in this. He's fine. He's totally fine. You know, and go make your movie. So I called my producer. I said, let's, let's get started on pre-production. He's like, we're already there. <laughs> I said, I go, did you hire a director? He's like, nope, we, knew, we know you're coming back. <laughs> I said, all right. So I went and shot my third film and I edited it in Mexico City. Uh, when I got back, I got told that, and this is the bad year. <laughs> so I got told uh, by an actor I was working with that he's got his life story uh, produced. He's a, a bipolar 
Golden Gloves boxer who was an actor, and he got the money from this, these two brothers that wanted to produce this film. And, um, and then when I had gotten back from Mexico, I was told by my producer, we have the money to do your, your fourth. So I was like, great, what's, uh, they'll all get started. So I started not bartending as much because I was working so heavily on two scripts at the same time, which I don't necessarily suggest, but they were, what was great about that is when I would submit an idea for one of the scripts and it would come back from the producers and they didn't like the scene, I would take that scene and put it for my other script. <laughs> so I was able to take, mix and match them a little bit. Um, that was a great time. But then at the end of that process, like I was ready. I was like, okay, good, let's go. I was wanting to quit my job. I wanted the, the financing for both these to go through. And then it was, there was some skepticism and then Blockbuster went out of business and that just killed the fourth, the budget for the fourth film. So I was like, okay, I still have Counterpunch. And then those two punks, there were producers, decided that they were gonna use my connections to do their thing and they didn't wanna produce our thing anymore. They were gonna do their own thing and they ended up doing some stereotypical, really crappy horror thing that they did. So I was just like left holding this bag and I'm like, and I'm like two months behind on, on our mortgage and I'm like, I've got to get back to work. So I just threw those both, you know, in a bin and I was at work and I was just like picking up shifts left and right. I was working five, six shifts a week and I just was not making enough money because it was the economy turnaround at that time. And I just couldn't catch up. I couldn't catch up, man. And I just... Uh, by the time December rolled around, uh, I was ready to premiere my third, my third feature film. And it was very ironic because it was at Rally Studios and it was probably the week before that. It's very, it's very strange when you're doing your dream, but your, your life is kind of going south, right? But this is going, it was, you're, it's this weird tug of war. And, I just remember after telling my wife, look, I fucked up. We're losing the house. We're going to have to move. I don't know how aggressive they are going to be at coming to take the house. My biggest fear was coming home and there being a lock and picking up my kids and there being a lock on our front door and we can't get into our house. I go, so we're going to have to move uh, right after this shoot, right after this the screening. And she was so gracious about it. Um, and I remember sitting outside going, I'm screening my third feature film next week and I'm losing my house. How did I even fucking get here? And I remember going to Rally Studios to test out. I was basically at that point thinking I'm gonna stop. After the third one, I'm gonna stop. I've given up so much and sacrificed so much. After this third one, I'm done. And I remember going to Rally Studios and I was gonna do a test of my hard drive because the movie was on the hard drive. And the projectionist was there and, you know, these guys, they do this, this is their job. They've seen a million filmmakers come in and they could care less. He just wants to get in and out. We're going to do, your, we're going to do a test. I'm going to go ten, every 10 minutes to see if it's okay. I'm like, okay, cool. I go, I just have a concern about the first 10 uh, minutes here and then we'll jump. And he's like, all right, um, so go ahead and sit down. You can call me. So I'm sitting in this rally studio screening, watching my movie up there. And I'm like this. First time I'm seen on the big screen. I've edited a million times on the small screen. But all the, it was just so big and the nuance and the performances and it was there and I'm just like watching it going, wow. I'm like watching it for the first time by myself in Rally Studios. And before I knew it, I'm like two thirds the way through and I haven't heard from the projectionist. 
And I'm like, oh shit, I only have like a half hour to really be there. I only have a half hour time to test my movie. So I turn around and he's like four rows behind me watching the movie. <laughs> and, I, and I go like this to him and he's like, no, no, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. He starts, he's watching my movie. He got into my movie. And I just was like, it was a, just a, a great moment in such a dark time for me. And I remember going to him going, and we watched the whole thing. So me and him watched all things. Like, man, I loved it, loved it. He's, I see so much crap come in here, man. With, he's, what was your budget on that? And I told him, and he's like, no way, no way. He's all, I'm gonna keep my eye on you. And I go, thanks so much, man. And um, and then you know we had the screening. It was a great screening, and it got distribution. And um, but again, it wasn't all enough money. By that time, I had I was already gotten another apartment. And we were moving out. So 2010 ended with us losing our house um, and moving. And you know, having movies out. I was still doing shorts, I was still writing, I was still doing all those things. So then when we moved out, I was pretty much done with filmmaking. I basically said, this is too much of a sacrifice that I put on my family. If it was just me, who cares, right? But yeah, that was a tough conversation with my wife and kids and... 2010, sorry. 2010, 2010. And, okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. So we get to 2011 and it wasn't dire. We weren't homeless, you know. We, I, I had three... Um, it was actually a really good lesson in negotiation, particularly if I come against producers or, or distributors again. But I had three real estate agents that were like hawks, like rats, trying to get our house. And so I basically, I emailed them individually saying, I have five other real estate agents that are offering me this amount of money to move out in three weeks. Whichever one of you comes with the, um, with the highest number is the one that's going to get this house. Because I had to sign off on on giving it to them. And uh, so I got a, a good chunk of money to have a little bit of a nest day, even though I was broke, my credit was shot, everything was shot, get us into a nice apartment and then start over. Sorry, just real quick, how did they know that they must have checked the bank records? Oh yeah, or, okay. it's a whole racket, man. It's a whole racket. The banks were never going to, never, no intention of helping people keep, stay in their homes because it would have been very easy to do. Um, so I, uh, it's like January, February of 2011 now, and I'm done. I'm done. Uh, my family's safe. We're in a nice place. I'm on a balcony. I'm reading a book. <laughs> my producer calls. I'm like, oh, what does he want? Hey, what's up? Hey, man, fourth feature is on. We got some money. <laughs> We're going to go forward. I go, no, no, I'm not doing it. And he's like, what do you mean you're not doing it? He's like, we love your script. We're going to go forward and shoot Mexico. I said, no, no, I'm not doing it. He, I, he's like, well, I go, what's the budget? And the budget was just ridiculously low. I go, my film can't be shot for that. He's like, we'll make it happen, man. He, he, they were looking out for their company. Um, they wanted to stay relevant. I go, let me write something else that's smaller. No, we can make it. We can do it. We can do it. And I said... All right, um, all right, let's do it. And so then it was just hard to cast because the budget was so low. But I felt like, okay, here's my second shot, right? I didn't have to worry about money at this point. We had money in the bank, we were safe. I'm gonna go make another movie. I thought my career was done. That was a bad motivation to go make that movie because I pulled in some really great uh, cast and I just didn't do right by them in that film. Even though I loved the process of it, it was still compromising too much for the budget. But we did it, and at the end of that, 
Um, I was in Mexico on our last two nights of shooting and the producer for the Counterpunch project calls me, says, where are you? I said, I'm in Mexico. He's like, I got the funding for Counterpunch now. You need to come and interview with these producers because they're interviewing directors from CAA and William Morris and you know all the big agencies. And I'm like, no, that's my movie, man. I wrote it. They're like, they're going to pay you for the script, but they don't want you to direct it. I'm like, well, that's bullshit. And he says, well, when can you get here? I go, I wrap in two days. I'll be there in two days. And um, I go, set up a meeting for Monday. I get back on Sunday. He's like, okay. So I tell my editor who was with me on set at the time, because he was cutting the movie as I was shooting. That was my normal process. I love to do that. Haven't had the uh, luxury of doing that. So I said, um, I told my editor, okay, stop what you're doing. He's like, what? I go, stop editing. I need you to cut me a trailer. He's like, why? I go, because our next gig is going to be based on how good that trailer is. He's all serious. I said, yeah. I go, you're coming with me on that one. I go, but I need you to cut it and you have 24 hours. He's like, oh, okay. So he's like cutting the trailer and he's not working on the movie. So my producer on that film is telling <laughs> me, why isn't the editor working on the movie? He's working on a trailer already. I go, well, I would like the cast to see what, you know, how the thing's coming together and so they feel good about what we're doing. And he's like, yeah, but we're losing time and money. And I said, yeah, I know, but just let, let us, he's, he's almost done. Just let him finish the trailer. And then he'll get back to editing. So, okay, cool. So he spends like two days on this trailer. And my producer's pissed. And we get into the room and he's like, I need to have a meeting with you. I go, okay, just a second. I bring the whole cast in. We're like, we, have, we own this, we're in this hotel. Then bring all the whole cast and crew in there. I go, Steven, play the tra trailer. Plays a trailer and everyone just loses it. The trailer just nails everything I'm trying to do with this movie. And my producer's very happy. <laughs> so he's like, okay, no worries. So I get back on Monday. I have that trailer with me. And the producer, she's Hungarian, very tough. She's a dear friend of mine now. She's a very tough Hungarian woman. And I'm sitting in front of me. She's like, so why, do I, why am I meeting with you? You're not with CAA. You're not with William Morris. You're not with this. You're not with that. Why am I even talking to you? We're going to pay you as a writer. Why do you think you should direct this? And I said, well, I just shot this film I got back from. I'd love for you to see the trailer of it. What do you mean you just shot it? I go, I just wrapped yesterday. She's like, yesterday's Sunday? I said, yes. And you have a trailer already? I said, yes. Let me see. So I turn around. <laughs> She's watching the trailer and I just... She like folds my laptop down. She looks at me. She's like, okay. I go, thank you. Appreciate your time. Oh, wow. Laughed. And uh, she had another partner, actually. And then she had called me and said, I need to speak to my partner first. I said, sure, no problem. It was like a five-minute conversation after that. And I got that gig. So I got that right after I got back from... So I was in post-production on my fourth and in pre-production on my fifth. And that was my best year, man. It was just movie-making nonstop. And uh, yeah, it was great. And that the fifth one... They both got distribution. The fifth one got picked up by uh, Lionsgate and was on Netflix. It's actually, I just got word that it's making its China debut. This movie came oh, out five wow. years ago. It's making its China debut in October and its UK debut just last month. So that movie has still got legs. It's a boxing film, it's a genre film. So those films kind of, they can go a little bit, they go longer, they have a long shelf life. Um, so that was my, my, my worst and best years back to back. Yeah, I graduated in 2008 and um, didn't really, I went to business school 
because um, I, I was filming since I was a kid, um, bought my first camera when I was 13, but I don't think it ever really occurred to me that filmmaking could be a possibility. It was just way too cool for me. <laughs> like, didn't even it didn't even occur to me that that was ever going to happen. That um, didn't even cross my mind. So, um, yeah, I ran away from home when I was about 16, and so there was kind of a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of big recognition of oh I need to have stability in my life so when I did go to college it was for business and um, focused on that but went to a liberal arts school called uh, Fort Lewis College in Durango Colorado and had amazing professors that really let me do um, whatever I wanted with projects and turn in videos and um, it was a great atmosphere to be in to learn about who I was and what I wanted to be and after graduating from there there was just you know not a lot of jobs it was the, the peak of everyone getting fired from places and so um, I decided I would do video production and that started with you know wedding videos or tutorials um, for uh, was really connected with the outdoor industry at that time so Osprey backpacks and things like that were paying me to do four by three videos on DB, uh, DB tapes and uh, YouTube had barely even started. So <laughs> it was just a different time period and slowly, slowly gained confidence enough to um, make my first film and it just kind of took off from there. I had um, made a film before that called 23 Feet that was about uh, people living simply to do what they love in the outdoors and took that on a kind of unorthodox tour where um, the film was called 23 Feet because that was the size of my Airstream and created a screen that came down from the Airstream um, and had an outdoor city theater tour where in 30 different places around the West um, showed the film and, the out and outside it was places like, you know, Tuolumne Meadows outside Yosemite to like 30 climbers to a blocked off street in Portland, Oregon with 300 people. Um, so it was an amazing, uh, very unique uh, distribution <laughs> strategy. Um, but I just had no idea about film festivals or anything like that. But what I did find was people would come up to me after the screenings or write me letters later about how they had decided to, you know, quit their day jobs and, you know, empty their uh, rentals out and move into a van and decided to just like, you know, live the life that they've always wanted to live, and it was really uh, jolting to get these letters from people who had decided to change their life after seeing a film I had made, and um, really spoke to how powerful films can be. Um, so after that, I made Move Shake, uh, which was a series about people who are dedicating their lives to their passions of environmental and social justice, and that was a big learning experience, but made several short films and uh, uh, it, it was what led me to um, making my first feature in Afghanistan um, called Frame by Frame that was about Afghan photojournalists. Um, so slowly, slowly getting away from the outdoor industry and more into topics that I was interested in uh, around storytelling. And yeah, I think it's probably not good to say, but I might be the only person who's thankful for the recession because <laughs> it was, I think I could have very easily just gotten a marketing job somewhere if it would have been a different time. Um, but it really forced me 
to think, okay, I could do a job I really don't want to do and make okay money, or I could do exactly what I want to do and push myself. And that was a scary, scary risk and leap to take, but I'm really glad it turned out that way, obviously. I've been a photojournalist for a very long time, and um, you kind of try not to think about it while you're always thinking how to stay safe. Um, this film was definitely taking a risk. You know, the decision going down there is that we're going to make a drug war film that's not going to be experts, that's not going to be talking heads, that's going to put you in the front row and really make you feel, not learn, but really feel what it feels like to be in horrors, to be in this reality, to be in the midst of it. So sure, we had a couple of bad runs, and I've had colleagues, including Tim Heatherton, that have died. But I, f I think you kind of, you know, you really concentrate on, on being careful and on pushing and doing what you want, and you kind of block out at the same time this, wow, this could be over like that. Um, and that was, that was kind of the balance that we struck. We, we ended up going to Juarez more than 20 times. We always stayed for a very short time. We, we had our little systems in place. It was a very small two-man crew. We tried to not be visible. We tried to not step on any wrong toes, not open stuff we shouldn't. Does the question cross your mind, why make a film if it may be my last time? No, because, and I think that that was actually Tim's Huthington message to me. Like, he didn't know where, he didn't, he barely knew Libya, uh, but you never know when it's going to happen if it does. And if you always think that way, then us photojournalists, filmmakers that really go to the front lines will never do any of it. Because if you live in fear, then it's possible anywhere. I could step outside and, and something would happen. So you gotta, you gotta push. Everybody has their own destiny. I think because I didn't know anything, I didn't know anything at all about filmmaking. Like, um, I'm glad everything happened the way it did uh, because I think had I, this is me, I think because I didn't know a lot, it made me want to prove so many people wrong and prove, you know, just let people know like, look, I can do this. Like, I can do this. Um, and the way I got into the film business is, well, not the film business, but into directing was actually, I, won't, I don't want to say by accident, but um, it, was, it was, there was a director who promised that, you know, I, I, I would write all these screenplays and he promised that the screenplay that I optioned to him would be the next screenplay that he write. He, did, he didn't go through with his word. And at that particular time, I was emotional about it. I was angry about it. But what I did was I uh, went out and I made my first film. And as I look back, I'm thankful that he said no. Because had he made that first film, I would never probably get on the set and start to direct. But once I got on set to direct my first film, even though I didn't know anything, I didn't know anything about filmmaking, I didn't know what I was doing, um, I knew that this is where I want, what I wanted to do. So I don't think there's anything that I wish I had have known because, you know, um, at that particular time, I can say, well, I wish I had went to film school, but I don't wish I had went to film school um, because I, I, I've loved, I love that whole process of learning as I go along, learning as I make different films. And uh, because it, for me, um, for me, 
making my, it was like, it was, that was film school for me. And every time I would, I would screen a film, I would get this constructive criticism. Not only did it make me a better filmmaker, but that criticism made me a better human being that I probably wouldn't have received if had I went to film school. So as I, as, as, the, as I got that criticism, I didn't go, I didn't think I would knew everything. I had to listen. So when you listen to the, and able to accept constructive criticism, that does something to, you, to your character. The thing is, is that I think if I went to film school, I probably would have thought, okay, I can't make a film for $5,000. Oh, well, if that first film, it was made for like $1,000. I was like, I can't make a film for $1,000. You know, um, because in, probably in film school, I don't know, maybe they're taught that you need a certain budget. But I wasn't thinking about budget. I wasn't thinking about, I, I thought, okay, I know I can make a film for $5,000. I know I can make a film for $10,000. So had I went to film school, I probably didn't have that. I probably didn't think that way. I probably, okay, I need 150,000 to make a film during that particular time, you know? And so that's why I'm saying I'm, I'm thankful that I went in that direction because, you know, I, hey, I'm saying I have a thousand dollars. I'm gonna use this thousand dollars. I'm gonna make a movie, you know? <laughs> and uh, even though it shot, it was, everything was shot in wide shots, but I'm, I'm grateful, I'm thankful, you know? Because the next one, we had our medium shots, we had our wide shots, we had our close-ups. And then, you know, and you know, each each project, you know, I've seen it, you know, grow and grow and grow. I'm only gonna get, you know, I'm always, I consider myself a student filmmaker because I'm always learning. I'm watching more film courage, I'm watching the interviews. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm always, I've always considered myself a student filmmaker and I would never ever escape that. For me to be working full-time at a Pulse House, at the vault, I think I was working in the vault at the time. And then my movie came out in Blockbuster. It was like pretty cool. I was like the all-star at the company for, you know, for a couple of years or whatever. I was putting my movies out and people were trying to figure out like, how, how are you doing this? Like, how did you shoot a movie and you're working here full time? And I just didn't sleep a lot. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I, I found ways to shoot like three movies without losing my job uh, at the Post House Center site. And um, use a lot of my vacation, was strategic with my vacation days. And um, I remember working a night shift as a film scanning recording operator. And I remember staying up almost, um, a period almost eight days straight. Like I stayed up three days straight and then went to sleep and then stayed up another three days straight and then went to sleep because they my company wouldn't let me take time off but i worked a night shift so i just got my mind mentally <laughs> mentally uh stabilized that i'm going to stay up because they told me if i if i didn't direct my if, if i was unable to direct my movie just gonna get another director but the movie wasn't paying me enough to quit my job so i had to make sure i kept my job my post job which was obviously paying paying all my bills and everything in this one movie uh, it was my third or second movie called Sweet Potato Pie. I remember that. But, um, but yeah, I remember working in night shift. And I remember the way I worked it out, I got off at 6 in the morning. And I had call time at 8 in the morning. So I literally stayed up. I started, I remember started, I made sure I started to shoot on a Wednesday. Because I was off on a weekend. So I stayed up Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, straight. I don't know how I did it. But my whole system was uh get off at work at 6 a.m uh go home shower and i was ready for 8 a.m call time then i worked from 8 a.m on the set from 8 a.m to 8 p.m 
And then I was able to take a nap uh, for an hour or so to get to work for 10 p.m. Because I worked from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And I did that literally for three days straight. And I remember the only way I stayed up was I had something to do every second, every minute for the last 36 hours. Like the job that I had at Cinecide required me to be attentive with the computer and with these film out and scan outs and I was on coffee, but I remember having my friend videotape me as proof that, you know, I was pulling off this miraculous situation with directing the movie that ended up going to Lionsgate. Like my first movie that went to Lionsgate and I'm just working in working and scanning and recording at the time. It's like two thousand two or three. And um yeah, but yeah, it was a, a crazy feeling when you're passionate and dedicated and, and you have a chance and opportunity and I chose to to keep both. I was like, man, I can't quit my job for I was only I was making under ten thousand dollars or something for doing a movie. It should have been way more than that. <laughs> but um but yeah, that was a a pretty interesting uh situation when I when I pulled off the movie Sweet Potato Pie. When I was twenty three, I was a story editor of the series, General Motors Theater. And the man who produced it, Sidney Newman, um, he um, said to me one day, you know, Ted, I was doing a lot of rewriting. It was a great training because people, directors were saying, I'm 10 minutes short. I need two scenes, right? I'd write two scenes. And, and then, um, but after about a year of this, um, the producer, Sidney Newman, came and said to me, you know, Ted, you're a pretty good writer. Not a great writer, but a pretty good writer. But I know, but I know one thing you really would be good, great at. And I said, "What's that?" He said, "You'd be a great director." Now, why he said this, I never asked him why he said this. He said, "Here's what I'm going to do. I'd like you to do. You're going to do one show for me, live television drama. If I like it, I'll give you a year's contract. If I don't like it, you're out in the street. You can't come back to this job." Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, "I'll risk it." He said, if you don't want to risk it, you can, you can stay on because you're doing a great job as a story editor. And I said, no, 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 I want to be a director. I'll risk it. And um, so he, he allowed me to direct. And of course, I worked my butt off getting you know, get every shot because it had to do it live. I wanted to be a director. And he, I was being given a chance to be a director. How many offers will you get of that kind in your whole life? So I was just, I'll let you direct. Mm-hmm. So I, I just had to grab it. I, I'm not interested in a job, I was interested in being a director. So you had to take it. It was an opportunity that was being offered to you. It would be, it would be silly to refuse it. Oh, it's very easy to be an independent filmmaker in India because all are. There are very few studios that operate. They've come from um, the West. One or two Indian companies are doing it. They, they are studios. The rest are all independent films. It's very easy to be an independent producer. I am an independent producer, not reliant on uh, any studio facilities. But think, when things go wrong, it goes drastically wrong for an independent filmmaker. We would rather that we had somebody taking all the risks for us. We're taking it all ourselves. There's, some of the films don't even have insurance. Things go wrong, they go down. It's like bungee jumping. Um, we try to check the cards, but it can never be sure. I bet all the money I have most of the time. 
If the film doesn't do, I start from scratch again. I've done it a couple of times. I, I don't enjoy it very much. And you're able to sleep at night? Oh, yes. Uh -huh. Okay. Oh, <coughs> because to begin with, I never had this money. Everything else was bonus. So I can't complain. The whole theme to this whole journey that we have been on as filmmakers and, and the band has been on and Arnell has been on is truly one that you could easily say with a theme of Don't Stop Believing. I mean, um, you know, Arnell's been doing it for a very long time and Journey has been around for a very long time and I was always a big Journey fan and, and I always thought they were big and they were always big and they're always going to be big. But when you, you get into it and you kind of dive into it, you realize that, no, they're just like anyone else, anyone's life. They have ups and downs and highs and lows. And, you know, Neil never stopped believing in his band. John, Jonathan Kane never stopped believing. And Arnell never start, stopped believing. And we as filmmakers, like, never stopped believing. It's like really a theme. And, you know, we kind of jumped out of there on our own credit cards. We didn't have funding in place and everything. And the first time I saw a little clip that Ramona put together, I said, we have to do this. And she's like, well, they're on tour right now. And I said, right now? We were standing in a uh, Starbucks parking lot. She said, yeah. I said, we're missing the story. It's unfolding. Like, we have to go now. And she was like, well, we don't have money. And I said, well, we can't let that stop us. Don't let that stop us. So within a week of that conversation, we were on the road, just like putting stuff on credit cards. And, and we just always knew. And there was one moment, you know, because we were so small and we didn't have a lot of money, there was only five of us on a road. So there's two camera operators, one sound, Ramona, and myself. And my job was always sort of to, to PA and, you know, to drive and just dump footage and just do kind of all the things, anything else that, you know, needed to be done. And I remember at one point, we were probably like maybe at the sixth venue, and I was sitting back there and it kind of dawned on me, I said, we're like charging up a storm. We're following a rock band. We don't have any money. We don't know what the movie is. We don't know anything. We're just out here. And I watched like 10 minutes of Arnell in the dressing room and he, was, he captivated me. I couldn't take my eyes off of him. And that's when I knew. I was like, we're going to be all right. Like I knew we're going to be all right. So we were in a minivan. Um, it was five of us, all our luggage for the summer, all our gear. And we would just follow this band, I mean, these big, you know, tour buses, these big semis, and just kind of keep up with them. And it never occurred to me before, like, what am I doing? Because, you know, you're kind of on adrenaline, and, and you're just, you're just like, get it done, get it done, get it done. But that's, then once you're getting it done, and you're doing it, then you kind of sit back and be like, what am I doing? Um, so that was like the first time. And it was the last time I questioned it. Yeah, it was probably about three years. I had an idealism that I'd write the script and it'd be a David Sedaris thing, the first and probably only David Sedaris project. And my thing was so, okay, even though it's a little dark and offbeat, people are going to want to make it. You know, people are going to make this and make it on a higher end indie budget level, you know, like a few million. And it was, it was a little naive on my end to think that, you know, I was putting a lot of restrictions on it. You know, I think when you're going for money, you need to know what how willing, how, where are your priorities? For me, my priority wasn't controlling the material, keeping the script the same, and, and being able to decide on having, you know, the final say on casting. Like, those are the kind of things then that are gonna push investors away. Not to say that if I embraced all those things, anyone would've jumped on board, but ultimately I'm making a movie that was dealing with religious themes, themes of sexuality, you know, stuff that isn't necessarily 
I, every time I see a, uh, an independent film, I'm like, I don't know how they got it financed. And I mean, I always feel it as a compliment, you know, especially when I see ones made like, I'm like, how did that happen? I think every single film finds its own way. Um, and usually that way is totally different than the previous way, you know? I mean, this, this was, it was just a long process of really getting a lot of no's. At one point, I think I calculated it was like, it's once it got like over like 150 no's or so, I just, I stopped counting. Like I kept a running chart. And when it was like hit that many of people, like financiers or producers or companies, production companies that had passed on it, then I just like stopped keeping a number tally because it got a little depressing. You know, I, I feel like I have a thick skin, but I think it's okay for anyone to feel like 150 rejections on the same script is, is a little, it can be a little mind numbing, you know? But um, it was, you know, but it was about, I thought the system would sort of serve me a little better. Like I thought, well, I made my first film and people saw it and people liked it. And now I've written the script and it's a well-known author and I have agents and it's gonna, it'll, it'll come together in the way it should. And it was kind of wrong for me to feel that way. Cause ultimately it came together through whatever resources I sort of engaged and build. And so I had support from, you know, film independent that I had on my own that I had built over, over the years. And they, I got brought into a program where I met a producer who came on board that brought financing. You know, so it was one of those things that ended up being through my own path. And not to say that as, a, as anything negative towards the agency route, but just to say that like at no point should you ever just sort of be like, okay, well now I have reps and uh, they're gonna get it all taken care of. Like no, at the end of the day, you're, only re you're always responsible for yourself. And I think financing is no different. Um, just about always staying on top of anyone you know, anyone who might know someone with money and just always staying persistent on it and, and keep on pushing and keep on pushing because it's, it's gonna, everyone's gonna say no. I mean, rarely do I have, I've rarely ever heard of a story where someone was like, I, was, I sent the script out, people liked it, we got it made. Like it, that maybe happens with genre films, but I don't think it ever happens with a, a, a drama or a comedy or especially not a dark comedy, you know? Two things, I, ha I do have a group of friends that have sort of gone away while I've been progressing in my career. Now, my career is still not where I want it to be, but just there was there was even a time when I got to do my first, direct my first feature. There were two people that like just were there in my life, but they, I could see they pulled back. Like there was something about what they sort of, their decisions were sort of taking them a different road. They were the ones that were way more talented than me. I mean, both of them still are. Both of them are better directors, better writers, like, I think they're better, but they sort of get in their own way. And, you know, I found myself having to pull away because there was no sort of like the love wasn't, you know, like I wanted them to be as excited as I was for them when they had things happening and it wasn't. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And now, you know, this is, you know, about four years later and it's like those guys are not in my life anymore. And it's tough. I mean, I tried, I keep trying. Then I was at one point, I was like, I'm the only one texting. <laughs> take the, take a look, yeah. what do you got? You know what I mean? And then I'd meet and then it's just like, oh uh, yeah, you know, and it's just like, oh, where's the, no excitement for what we're doing together, you know? Yeah. So it's tough, it's tough. I mean, it's business, I mean, it's brutal. I started at 15, I started writing, um, directing, shooting, choreographing and editing. And, you know, I started uh, really early um uh shooting on Betamax um and so uh the way I figured out uh how to create an editing system for my films was I would take two Betamax machines put them together um I pop a, I pop the raw foot like I'd shoot on Betamax and I popped that 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 raw footage in the top uh player 
on the bottom player, I, I, I put um, an empty uh, tape in there and so uh, and run it all through the television. And so I would use the pause and uh, play button to actually uh, cut on my short onto the uh, uh, onto the, the empty uh, tape, you know. So <laughs> um, I learned to get really precise because if you make a mistake, you have to start all over again and recut the whole thing. So um, I used like two Betamax machines to edit, and then I, I ran a boombox into the Betamax machines into the t television, and uh, I had like all my cassette tapes kind of queued up with music, and I would have to, at the exact moment, I would have to pop the tape in and, and play it and record the music onto my uh, uh, short films, you know? So I just kind of cook, cooked up this elaborate way to, uh, to make these uh, short films, these little five minute and 10 minute little uh, shorts. And um, I was sort of uh, out of necessity. I was sort of used to doing everything myself. Uh, um, I would have to write the short. Um, I would use my friends and we would shoot on the weekends. Um, and then throughout the week, you know, I would edit and put the music on. And by the by the next weekend, I would have like a short film. Everybody sit around and watch it. And it's interesting too, because like the first camera I ever bought, like a, a so at 15, I put this camera on layaway. It was a, uh, it was Japanese, this Betamax camera. It wasn't in English, so nobody wanted it. You know what I mean? And so um, uh, that was the only reason I could afford it is because uh, it was so cheap because nobody would buy this thing. And so um, I bought it. I took it home, and then I, um, I made myself like a table of contents. Like I would push a button and see what it does. And then whatever that whatever it did, I would just write that down. Like, oh, okay, that must be rewind, and this must be play, and this must be you know, and sort of like made myself uh, a table of contents to use the camera until I learned uh, all the symbols and learned what they did. And um, and yeah, that's how I uh, started making my first shorts with this Japanese camera that nobody wanted. You know, what store was this where you put it on layaway? Uh, oh, it was a pawn shop. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, it was oh. like an old school pawn shop. Um, <laughs> but there were some interesting stories behind that camera. <laughs> yeah, it took a, it took like eleven months to get that camera. Uh -huh. I mean, every little bit of money I got, I would just put on this camera, and you know. The truth is, I think that that balance is never perfect. Uh, I often joke that what I think doesn't get talked about enough uh, is that the stage of life, at least that I'm in right now, is I don't know that I do anything as well as I wish that I could but I'm just trying to get all of it to at least be pretty good. Uh, being a dad, being a professor, being a husband, being a filmmaker, uh, they all have their demands. Every one of them is awesome. I wouldn't give up any of them. Uh, but no, for sure, making this movie is one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Uh, and I don't say that actually looking for pity, but more like I think there just should be a more candid acknowledgement of how hard it is to balance those things. Uh, you know, for part of this movie, I was like, I was a part-time professor, part-time stay-at-home dad, and trying to make a feature. And then, um, you know, now I'm a full professor, full-time professor at Occidental, and uh, you know, I have two kids now instead of one when I started. Um, and for sure, yeah, like that balance is difficult in so many ways. In terms of just time, when can you get free to do it? Uh, in terms of just resources. Uh, you know, those other things, there's just spending money and, 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 and that sort of stuff. And then more generally, the, the hardest one I find is the shift in mindset. That if I were to really encapsulate the phase of life I'm in right now, it's, 
having to shift gears and sort of take off different hats and put different hats on with no real transition point. So to go from dad to professor to filmmaker to dad to, you know, like, like around that, uh, there's no mental space to sort of flip over. And I've just accepted, I think that's just where, it, where I am right now. Uh, and I think there's this image of like filmmaking that is almost like it's divorced from the rest of life. But again, you know, I think that this is the reality of independent cinema. And every filmmaker I know knows this. I, I actually think we should talk about it more, which is to say, if you are feeling like, uh, man, it's really hard to like, you know, pack that lunch for the kid <laughs> and then like go to your job, in my case, like teach this lesson correctly and then make it to set on time and shoot this shot, having remembered everything you needed and being in a state of mind to be creative, if you're like, that's difficult, I wanna say like, yeah, it is difficult. And I don't know who we're kidding if we're saying it's not. Uh, and, and, and to me, like, and that's fine. Like, I think that, like, that struggle is a reality. And so I'm just trying to maximize it and optimize it, but I don't think it's going to go away. I was also working at a sandwich shop, which was my second, um, job I ever had. Um, and actually my last straight job I ever had. And when I was working there, uh, I, making sandwiches and then going to these film classes at, SMC and you know the first thing first day of class we're, we're sitting in the uh, in the class we watch uh, No Country for Old Men and the teacher goes okay and, and what did you guys think of it and nobody raises their hand so I, I raise my hand and I start talking about the nihilistic themes in the film and really getting in depth into it and then um, he, the teacher's like excited it's the first day and he's like yeah this is great what do you guys think and everybody's like quiet and then like one girl slowly raises her hand and goes i liked it and everybody was like oh yeah i liked it too oh yeah he was uh, uh that that guy in it uh um he was really good uh the javier uh, bardem or whatever and i was i was like um i was trying to talk about like real stuff in the movie and so i i i just didn't like being there um so they had a a thing where you know they assigned it in the beginning of the year that by the end of the year you had to either write a script or make a short film or something like that and you had to write like a short script and so i started writing a short script and i really liked the short script and i started writing it into a feature script and then i finished the feature script in my pure joy um and I just started hitting up friends of mine going, hey, I want to make this movie. All I need is $7,000. $7,000 is all I need to make it. That's all that Robert Rodriguez had to do, El Mariachi. I'll, I'll try and make it work. So I tried to get seven grand, um, and I ended up talking to my friend and then business partner later, um, Jarrett Cohen, and he gave me the seven grand to make the movie. And I remember I, I just stopped going to school, dropped out, uh, to make the movie because I couldn't deal with their schedule and I was working at the sandwich shop and I remember uh, They called me and they're like, uh, hey, uh, we need you to come into work today And I was like, I, I can't do that. Uh, you know, I I'm I need to do pre-production on this movie and they're like Well, do you, uh, they're like like is it a real movie? And I was like, yeah, it's a real movie It's like a low-budget indie. I'm, it's seven thousand dollar budget and the guy laughs and he goes Well, you got to ask yourself do you want to make a small little indie film or do you want to have a job? And I was like, I want to make a small little indie film, peace. And I hung up the phone and never went back and I haven't had a regular job since. Um, and kind of like to immortalize that, I got life tattooed on my knuckles, which 
some people thought was stupid um, because they thought it was like, oh, like thug life. But for me, it was, you can't get a restaurant job or a straight job when you have tattoos on your knuckles. And so it, it was, for me, it was getting rid of my fallback, meaning that this is my life. This is what I'm going to do. And if I leave a fallback for myself, anytime things get hard, I'm going to try and go to the fallback. And things get hard. They really do. But as long as you don't have a fallback, you know that you got to keep pushing forward and hustling. And I think, I think you know, I, I talked with Wes Craven once when we were working on something. And he, he said that, and, and I really took it to heart, that... Filmmaking isn't judged by how great of a filmmaker you are. A career in filmmaking is judged by the ability to persevere. If you believe in yourself as a filmmaker and keep pushing forward against all odds, those are the people that change things. Those are the people that actually do. And I want to be a doer and I want to keep pushing forward. And I believe that, you know, it's not always an easy road. I grew up with my dad being a writer. He was, you know the head writer on Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs. He won three Emmys and a WGA award. And I remember sometimes we had a lot of money and sometimes I didn't get presents for the holidays. And it's because there's ups and downs. And as long as you can ride it out and choose to persevere and go through it, you'll do okay. Truth be told, probably learned more from the films that didn't get made. Um, thinking back on why they didn't get made, um, what could I have done different. But of the films that got made, which are the ones people know a bit more, hopefully, um, I, w I would say the Moth Mothman Prophecies, which was another Richard Gere film, um, was, the, and, and there was one moment, one seminal moment, uh, and, and again, that was a film that, that had been shopped all over town Every company, independent, medium, big studio, all passed on it. I wasn't involved at the time. The agent shopped it. The writer I had produced before, I, was, I actually got to produce his first film. And he came to me and said, would you read this? And I fell in love with it. And, his, and, and then I learned it had been passed on. And I, I found there was one company, and only one company, that hadn't seen it. And that was Lakeshore, a wonderful company. So I said, you know what, I will, I will um, invest time in this and I will take it to Lakeshore. And, um, and I knew it was, that was it. There was literally one buyer in the whole world I could sell this to. So I went to them and they read it, three executives, and they called me the following Monday morning, typical Monday morning call, right? Brilliant story. We loved the craft. Um, it was intriguing based on a true story. Oh my God, fascinating. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful responses from all of them. At which point one of them said, so thanks so much for sending it over. It's going to be a pass. Only in Hollywood. And I thought that, wait a minute, I'm sorry. Did you just say it's going to be a pass? All this, all the, all the, you, you're, you know, all this laudatory language and then and there was a long pause because I knew this was it. This was the last man standing. There was no other option. And that was the company, I mentioned this earlier, that was the company at the moment when I said, I respectfully pass on your pass. And there was some nervous laughter. I said, look, of course you can pass, but based on our relationship and our respect for one another, I would ask that before you make a final, final, final decision, let me just come in and talk to you.
So I, I went to this meeting. I told these three executives the story of my relationship with my dad. Why? Because the script, when I read it initially, uh, was so moving to me because the character played by Richard Gere uh, is so lost in grief after his beloved young wife dies. And a lot of what the texture of it were, was reminiscent to me of what I felt after my dad's death. He was my best friend. And, and to me, this film was a great film in its own right. It, it deserved to get made. And more importantly, it would be a private homage to my dad. And so I cared deeply about it. So I went into this meeting with three people who'd read it and, and said nice things about it, but passed on it. And um, so I felt the door was open just a, a little bit. And I never referenced the script. I never talked about the title. I just simply told him the story of my dad. I told him who my dad was. I told him about our friendship and our, our relationship and, and the love that we had and what it was like when unexpectedly, never having been sick, he just passed away and what that was to my family and to me. And I just spent not long, 12 minutes, 10 minutes telling this story at the end of which I simply said, I cannot imagine anyone, filmmaker, actor, audience, doesn't matter, who will not be moved. We're wired, whether we lost someone or not, we're wired to understand the tragedy and, 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 and despair of losing someone so close to you. And they huddled and they changed their mind. Bottom line, they changed their mind. And we got to make this film. And it's a great film. Um, it wasn't as big as Pretty Woman, but, um, but it was well received and actually become more popular over, over, over the years. And I'm very proud of the film, but in a way, as a learning lesson, it's like, you know, we talked earlier about never take no for an answer. And I think what I came away from that was if you are, you know, if you're ballsy enough, if you're bold and courageous enough, just to, it's like, get naked in public. If you're willing to get naked in public, people are impressed, right? Because we all know about vibration and frequency. And when, if you're like, you know, when you're deeply moved and you're in that very deeply authentic place and, and there's no BS, we know it, it's real. That's very attractive to us. And that's what we want to put on a big screen. And that's what they got. They got why this is going to move the audience and therefore potentially be a success. And the film was successful as a business matter, but I, that's not, you know, it, it, I, I don't measure it in those terms. I just think, how do I get a yes from these people so I can do what I so desperately want to do as a creative person? And, and the only thing I could do is tell the truth. And um, it worked. It was always my dream to make movies. And it, it was always my dream to be a Hollywood director. But that was kind of like a secret because I'm, you know, I'm from Sweden and it's like the other side of the world. Like I don't have any like family members who are in showbiz or anything like that. So it's not like, like you can say to friends and family like, yeah, I'm going to be a Hollywood director because people are going to be like, yeah, sure. Like I'm going to be the king of Spain or whatever, you know. But that was always the goal. And then it's been... You know, a lot of times that goal has felt really far away and I've been very depressed and felt like, oh, this is never going to happen, of course. But that was always the goal. Like, that was what I wanted to do with my life. So in, in a way, it's been, you know, you can't say that it's been expected, but it's always been the goal. So it's always been like, yeah, that's what I really want. So I turn around and he's like four rows behind me watching the movie. <laughs> 
And I and I go like this to him, and he's like, no, no, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. He starts, he's watching my movie. He got into my movie. And I just was like, it was a, just a, a great moment in such a dark time for me. And I remember going to him going, and we watched the whole thing. So me and him watched the whole thing. He's like, man, I loved it, loved it. He's like, I see so much crap come in here, man. With, he's like, what was your budget on that? And I told him, and he's like, no way, no way. He's like, I'm gonna keep my eye on you. And I go, thanks so much, man. And I do think it's worth fighting for. All the negativity, all the challenges, all the frustrations is worth fighting through to get there because it really is great. Like when you're on set and it's working and you're telling that story and the actors are there and the cinematography, look, it, it's so like all of that disappears and just fades away. And you're just like, wow, I'm creating this amazing moment and it's working. Yeah, it, it's worth fighting for, no question. Filmmaking isn't judged by how great of a filmmaker you are. A career in filmmaking is judged by the ability to persevere. If you believe in yourself as a filmmaker and keep pushing forward against all odds, those are the people that change things. Those are the people that actually do. And I want to be a doer and I want to keep pushing forward. And I believe that, you know, it's not always an easy road. I grew up with my dad being a writer. He was, you know the head writer on Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs. He won three Emmys and a WGA award. And I remember sometimes we had a lot of money and sometimes I didn't get presents for the holidays. And it's because there's ups and downs. And as long as you can ride it out and choose to persevere and go through it, you'll do okay. I think it's probably not good to say, but I might be the only person who's thankful for the recession because <laughs> it was, I think I could have very easily just gotten a marketing job somewhere if it would have been a different time. Um, but it really forced me to think, okay, I could do a job I really don't want to do and make okay money, or I could do exactly what I want to do and push myself. And that was a scary, scary risk and leap to take, but i um, really glad it turned out that way, obviously. After having had a horrible year getting clobbered in my lawsuit against Chevron, um, I had, you know, the opposite experience where I saw the power of documentaries that, you know, films can affect positive social change, that they had a deep impact on, uh, on the West Memphis Three case. And thankfully that renewed my spirit and uh, I got out of my doldrums and I, you know, carried on. I learned from that experience and I think I understood that it's going to be hard if not impossible to get what you want out of this business unless you really have the ability to push through those moments when it's the hardest thing for you in the world and you feel like just crushed if you can push past that I think you have what it takes to stay in this industry that's another level of confidence that doesn't happen without adversity so if you achieve something in a moment of darkness how much easier is the light how much easier is sunrise like just you know we've got we've gotten through it so we could do it again we could do it again we could do it again so in those moments of weakness or in those moments where things are going bad i know that i'm not going to crumble you can't give up you just it's the it's 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 the blessing and curse of this industry you know you it's 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 a blessing and a curse i mean you keep going because you're passionate and you're going to get it done you know but it's not painless and then when someone sees what you see and they have distribution, and they say, it has value. Uh, T 
tears, and I don't mean the polite type, I mean the, the snotty type, you know, <laughs> uh, the, that kind of stuff that really, just thankful. All opinions and views expressed in this program represent the sole opinions and views of the participants involved and do not necessarily reflect or represent those of Film Courage LLC, its advertisers, or affiliates.